All right, welcome to the pod, Ryan O'Hanlon. He is a writer at ESPN. This is my my summer pivot to uh, the Unexpected Goals podcast. I'm going to call it now instead of instead of Unexpected Points. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue in the same in the same sort of way, I don't think. But this is my this is my plan here. Uh, thanks for joining me, man. Thanks for having me. I my guess is I'm the first guest you've had recording, literally recording from his parents' basement. Well, you know, football, fantasy football guys famously actually live in their parents' basement. So maybe they, they have a dedicated podcast studio inside of their basement. But this is good because this this, this leans into this leans into the the uh, the imagery that we want to have here of our analytics guys in the basement. But the problem is. Problem is you're not you're not an, you're not an analytics guy. Let's face it. Can I call you an analytics guy if you've actually played the game? Because that rules out, let's say, the initial objection to anything when you put numbers into sports is if you play the game, then you'd understand X, Y. Because it's being told to you by people who probably also didn't play the game, um, but you actually played the game, so that kind of rules out part of uh, part of our being part of our click. I think that's true, but I feel like I earn some like nerd bona fides by being American and writing about European soccer, mostly like that, that kind of like cancels out the fact that I played collegiate soccer. So um, I I hope that that like possibly gets me back in the club. Yeah, no, I can see that. That's like an easy way to dismiss anyone that you don't have the same opinion of. Now, have you in written form um, pretended or, at least not led on to the fact that you were American and maybe, you know, you got, you could get the O in there. You got the, you got the, you could pretend maybe you're, you know, you, you got a little Irish or something in you and then they don't find out until, till it's too late after you've already sucked, sucked them in. I guess I should try it because I feel like I, just cause I, you know, I used to work at the ringer and Grandland and I was a, an editor at mostly at both of those places. So I did a worked on the NFL, worked on major league baseball uh nba stuff and i'm like relatively fluent in those sports and kind of uh sort of the analytics you know movements revolutions whatever you call them in those sports so i tend to just like occasionally reference stuff in the end you know ideas from those fields i guess when i'm writing about soccer because soccer is kind of so far behind so every time i do that i'm giving myself away even if my you know language isn't um you know, Americanist, Americanized English, even though it definitely is, because there's a kind of British way of writing where it's like an, a very passive voice. And you ca- kind of talk about some like having pace rather than being fast. <laughs> um, yeah, and I don't yeah. really do that. So, uh, yeah, I, I next time I write, I should have them change my headshot, take off my glasses off. Um, the glasses don't work. Action. The glasses are a giveaway. Yeah. No, the glasses are glasses are not good. Uh, so I, this happened to me in another sport where I wrote this blog post like a week into the second half of the Major League Baseball season, and Aaron Judge had the worst wins above replacement of any player in Major League Baseball through that one week. So I wrote like a very clearly sarcastic blog post about how Aaron Judge had became the worst uh, player in Major League Baseball. Right. And it caught on in the like, like Barstool did a a blog post about, you know, this nerd from the ringer says Aaron Judge is the worst baseball player. 
And I literally still get, I got an Instagram message two weeks ago from some guy with a screenshot of the article saying this you question mark. Um, and all those people were like, you're just a nerd in a cardigan and glasses. You know, you don't know anything about baseball. So yeah, I guess I just defend everyone. This is kind of <laughs> where I'm landing on. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. What is interesting that, yeah, the cross sport comparisons, I was even thinking about that the other day, like internationally, obviously you don't have American football, uh, but even NBA or basketball, it's more of a, like a continental European thing. Um, I guess China, it's pretty big now, but then soccer's not that, not that big in China. And then maybe for South Asia, you have like cricket and some other stuff. And then maybe you have some interest in pure, like degenerate gamblers and cricket and a bunch of other different places, but it's really like one sport for so much of the world takes such a huge focus that even making these cross sport comparisons doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, then, then you got into kind of the idea of like the thing that's kind of hard about that are tricky you know when you're writing about the nfl there's a lot of assumptions you can make that like okay someone reading my work like knows what the salary cap is and they understand right. like who these players are and you don't need to like define what a division is but when you're kind of writing about especially when you're writing about european soccer and doing it for let's just call it an american or a u.s-based publication there's all kinds of kind of considerations you have to make in terms of like what you should define do you have to sort of explain what relegation is. Do you have to like, can you cite this team from 15 years ago or do you have to cite them and then explain who the team is and then it's not even worth citing them because then there's just a paragraph that's not about the piece um, at all. So like, I think it kind of ties into the same, same thing where I guess it's like, it's kind of an ongoing process of figuring out who your audience is. But since I'm writing for ESPN, at least I get a ton of, um, English, you know, European readership, but I think, you know, my articles are on the homepage of ESPN.com. So I think, I, I think I tend to, I don't know, I guess I tend to like assume that the readers have a general knowledge of the other American sports, basically, when I, yeah, no, when I write. No, that, that makes sense. And well, okay, let's, let's talk about how, how I've diagrammed this interview will go and we'll see if it ends up going this way or not. So first off, you mentioned ESPN. You mentioned the, you, you worked for the, the Ringer before. Um, so you took the time and effort to write this book, which I'm going to hold up here, Net Gains, which you so generously yeah. got me a copy of. And I have read through here inside the beautiful games analytics revolution. Well, why write a book? It's hard enough now to write like beyond tweet form. If I could just do my job in tweet form, I think I would do that. Why, why write a book while doing this other work that obviously you're working for ESPN and other places where you can get these posts out there? Yeah. So from like a selfish point of view, I felt like, you know, I was like working on the internet. Um, I wasn't only in sports when I started, but I've been, I was worked for a handful of other magazines, worked for a bunch of websites. I was mainly an editor and being a kind of web editor um, where you're kind of at the whims of news and stuff is, I'm not going to say it's thankless, but it's like a, a grind. You kind of always have to be on always, you know, you're more at the whims of when your writers are filing as opposed to like you kind of making your schedule. And honestly, I felt kind of burnt out. And I was at this time, I was, I started to do, a, I kind of done, did a ton of soccer writing at the ringer while I was also an editor over there, especially during the world cup. And it seemed like people were, somewhat interested in in this kind of 
I guess, alternative way of looking at the sport, you know, using data to try to, you know, being more kind of constantly acknowledging the random nature of the sport in the way I would talk about it. It seemed like people were interested and the kind of writing path for me was appealing. And then the idea of like writing a book where it's like, you can take a much, you know, you know, 10,000 foot view or whatever, rather than just reacting to a thing. And then another game happens and that changes the whole narrative. So then you have a new thing to react to. So the idea of one, like spending more of my time writing and then two, like, um, being able to like take a large step back and write in a way where you can kind of digress and kind of get grapple with sort of bigger ideas and kind of, um, you know, not what you're writing about doesn't change day to day based on what's happening in the world. I guess that really appealed to me, which I guess is kind of probably sounds weird to most people because writing a blog is a pretty daunting thing. No, no, I think it's, I think it's, I mean, there is a degree of permanence, even when it comes down to, I think podcasting versus writing a post versus, you know, a tweet versus going even further to a book where it's just the way we're conditioned, I think, naturally. And then also even further with the all the different avenues that people have of getting the written word out there in very uh, abbreviated form that it probably becomes harder and harder to kind of like get over the hump. I mean, it's hard for me just to write things sometimes, just in, even in a post that's a few thousand yeah. words or something like that, getting over the hump. So I can imagine this being a, a more daunting task. Now, how I wanted to attack this interview is kind of similar to how I feel like you've put together this book. I mean, we can talk about your your process even thinking about that is not a single character or character arc in here like you would maybe see like with the money ball or the blind side to a degree, you know, for what what Michael Lewis has done. But you do have it's very much character based, I would say, as you've gone through this. And it's not just a, you know, a textbook on soccer analytics yeah. and this is how you would apply it and let's put a bunch of graphs in here and other things you're going here it's it, it has a narrative through here so that's how kind of i wanted to attack things as part of this was that your was that your thought that it could be you know narrative based but not one arc the entire time in order to pull in these different strings that you wanted to get into into the book yeah i mean when i when i was kind of batting around ideas in my head of writing a book i thought it would have to be kind of the money ball type structure where it's like one character, one story, and then you can kind of hang all the different things off of it. And I think luckily my agent, um, I kind of was talking through some of my ideas and he was like, why don't you just do all of them? Because I think you're less at the whims of whatever happens with that team, right? Like, so if I, um, Fulham, for example, they have Tony Khan, who um, the son of the owner, well, the He's also the, his dad is the owner of Fulham as well as the Jaguars. And he kind of talks very outwardly about how he's a data guy and runs his team off of data. Um, you know, that could, you know, could that have been a book where I went and followed Fulham around for a year? Sure. But one, how many people are going to want to read a book where you kind of have to sell that a little bit about that it's about Fulham? But also, two, it's kind of, I could get lucky and foam could be like amazing and they could, or they could also be awful, which would also be good. Or they could just be kind of like neither. And then it's like the narrative propulsion isn't there. So by focusing on all these different people, I think one, it makes it, um, it kind of makes the book a little more textured, I guess. And also lets me play around a lot more with kind of the narrative that I'm 
telling throughout the book, if that makes any sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think maybe you have a section in here when we'll talk about uh, Jesse Marsh as part of this thing here. But I guess it's really hard with managers, too, as you know, I've come to learn as I've been following it more and more. It's like you could be gone next week. These guys like it's just crazy how often um, the chaos turns and how it's funny to me how they're just shuffling around to different jobs. The same guys where you see that to a degree in the NFL, but normally it requires, unless you're a big brand name sort of guy, normally it requires a demotion of sorts to like a coordinator type of position. And then you work your way back up. But you know, there's, there's a lot more here where guys are just moving from, from one position to the next, but that the stability is, is maybe not there. Now the, the first character that you talk about in here, um, you know, in a, in a, in a way, is just looking at yourself here. So let's talk a little bit about your history here, uh, being a player in the sport. And then, you know, we got into a little bit as far as how you made that transition to being a writer and analyzing the sport. But why don't we talk about your your background then? Yeah, so I uh, played pretty competitive soccer growing up. I played a bunch of sports growing up and then realized I was a lot better at soccer than basketball and baseball. Baseball in particular, I was on a travel team, and I thought I was good. And then I saw a guy throw a curveball for the first time, and I was just <laughs> like, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to do that. So yeah. I'll stick to using my feet instead. Um, and then, you know, played on travel teams, had a bunch of um, kind of personal training. And I there's this little story in the book. My dad, um, you know, not someone who you would um, associate with, kind of analytical thought, I guess. Uh, I was on like the best travel team on Long Island and he heard me say that I was bored um, after one of the practices. So he started getting me training with this guy um, who told my dad he would refund him completely if he wasn't um, satisfied, which was all my dad needed to hear. And then after that, he, this guy had me join another team that we were better than we would constantly beat. But my dad like watched the way they played and felt like, wow, like the way they're playing, they're controlling the ball, they're passing. The only reason we're beating them is because our kids are just bigger currently. Mm-hmm. And in and like faster, two years, probably. Yeah, 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 exactly. The team that can control the ball and move it up and down the field um, with some kind of patterns, like is going to be the better team. So I quit the team and went to this worst team. And, you know, all the parents on the team I was on were like baffled. They were just like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like you're turning your back on us. Like, you know, we're the better team. Um, and then sure enough, the team I went to became one of the better teams in New York. And I followed that eventually playing college at Holy Cross, um, a mediocre division one soccer program, never made the NCAA tournament. Um, my claim to fame is that we won our, I won my last four games in college, but our record was so bad that we didn't even make the postseason tournament. Cause you know, normally in college you you lose your last game, right? That's typically what happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. Outside of the bowl game system um, in college football, but I was able to win my last four um, cause our record was so terrible that we didn't even get into the Patriot league tournament um, my senior year. Um, and then after that got into journalism eventually 
got into sports journalism and then eventually started writing about soccer. Basically. So when you, if you've gone to Holy Cross and you interview at the ringer or Grantland <laughs> at the time, does, does Bill Simmons just, just give you a job on the spot? Is that all you need to do? Your resume is just a blank sheet of paper with education, Holy Cross on there. And he's like, you're in. Yeah, pretty much. Um, we do. <laughs> we, we say God is on our side and then handshake. And then I, Okay, one of the things you talked about here, which I found fascinating, and is the difference in this like development path. And part of it is is what you illustrated there in a way, because like a focus on games, a focus on winning, probably, um, which for the uneducated or unfamiliar soccer parent, probably. Um, it's like, are, is our team winning or not is probably like an indication maybe of coaching or things like that, or how well you're playing there. Same thing for kids. I know even with my, my seven-year-old who we're going through some different soccer things, he's like, are we going to win or not? Like, that's very important to him. And in some ways he might even yeah. rather be on a team that wins if he's not involved as much than a, than a team that loses. But when you, when you, you talked about moving up through like this college system, as opposed to like the academy system at a lot of different places, there's just much more of a focus on playing in games as opposed to training and getting better for the next level. Is that, would you say that's still the case in a lot of American soccer or has it changed a lot? Maybe comment on that a little bit there. Am I describing it correctly? Yeah, you're describing it correctly in general. I think it's changed drastically since I was playing. Um, now, at least all the MLS teams have academies. And then there's a bunch of other clubs that have academies that are essentially associated with MLS. And it's less, um, you know, we kind of just like copied what was being done in England, basically in the nineties. And if you basically, if you had a British accent, you could just convince suburban parents to let you coach their kids. Like I'll never forget. I, I was like practicing like diving headers at age 10 with this English coach. And it's like, that's like, learning how to dive and head the ball one beyond the sort of yeah, headers issue. are like outlawed um, until you're 15 or it's something also now, like yeah. not a skill that is neat. you like it's not one not like a it's not like this like very subtle fine-grained skill that only certain people can learn you know like you can learn that at like age 20 it like has no, it's just such a waste of time to be doing that um so yeah i think that's generally um kind of how it was but we sort of had a little bit more of like a melting pot of other countries development systems influence us. And then all the other, you know, cause soccer is so competitive and so lucrative across the world. Um, I think just the kind of the, the development, the way players are being developed everywhere has, I think gotten, gotten a lot more, a lot more efficient, even if it's still incredibly inefficient and a lot of it has blown over to the U S but I think it's still, um, the general thing about winning versus, you know, getting, learning the things that will actually make you better when you're older. It, I think that's still, there's still a pretty big tension with that. Probably, you know, it's not only in the U S I probably true in a lot of, a lot of clubs too. You need, you essentially need the head of the club to be like, yeah, we care more about playing five V five possession with no goals for two hours. than we do like winning the youth cup, um, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, I, I, I'm getting a little bit off even what I was expecting to talk about here. But I, I think there's an interesting concept where at least I have the per perception, or I had the perception that soccer in America is more of a, let's say, 
middle class, although middle class is always hard to define in America, because basically if someone is like making $2 million a year, depending upon where they live, they'll call themselves middle class. And if someone's making yeah. slightly above the poverty line, they'll, they'll basically call themselves middle class because there's like a negative association with, with calling yourself richer or poor and any sort of things. But I would say like healthy middle class to upper middle class to, you know, not as much as sports, like let's say tennis, where it takes a really intense training and regimen but there is a lot of that that can be paid for essentially mm -hmm. as opposed to developed and i think as part of that i kind of lost the perspective when i'm and then i'm regaining it now when watching international soccer is like how many of the players are not from middle class backgrounds right is that is that happening more here in the states that we're, that we're able to get more kids up through the pipeline who are not middle class who have opportunities if they are don't have that sort of financial means or is that still do you think that's a difference between america and other places i think that's a big difference um it's better like the mls academies will pay for um pay for the training um like they basically you're on scholarship so like if you can't afford it um you don't have to pay Right. But there's all these other clubs where you have to pay. And then there's the question of like, well, how do you get identified by an MLS team if you're a kid who's, you know, both of your parents are working multiple jobs and they don't, how would they even know about this stuff? So the kind of, you know, the, there's still so many kind of like holes, I guess, in the net in terms of trying to identify soccer players. And you're, you're absolutely right about the, it's absolutely true that the kind of socioeconomic, um, profile of soccer in this country is drastically different than it is everywhere else you know everywhere else it's like why is it so popular it's because you just don't there's barely any rules you just need like something around to kick basically and then you can play but here it's kind of well you need the cleats you need you need a car or a van to drive you to practice and then you need to pay for the coach and you know that automatically eliminates all kinds of kids from being able to play and i think um you know that that makes soccer an uh a sort of increasingly white sport just because of the way those things, um, you know, race coincides with kind of the socioeconomic strata. And I think even in the U.S., like, I once did a story, like, the, you can make an argument that the Mexican national team is the most popular sports team in, in America, um, just given the amount of Mexican-Americans there are um, and how they're all united by a love for the Mexican national team in a way that like, there's can only be so many Yankee fans or something like that. Well, there's and, so like, many sports even, in America too. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but like, there's still like, a the number of Mexican, Mexican Americans and, you know, Central Americans and South, South American uh, ethnicity people in the U S playing soccer is massive, but on the U S national team, it's still like a mostly white team. Um, and there's like a very kind of very small compared to the number of people that play soccer, Mexican and Central American influence. So, yeah, you're you're totally right that that's like a big uh, that's one of the big uh, not that our best athletes don't play soccer. I, I don't love that line of thinking that comes out every four years. It's more like the it's a good um, cope. It's a good cope, at least. Let's let's face it. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's that the kind of way that the ladder is set up it's just like eliminating such a large portion of the country much of which like has a large passion for playing this sport yeah yeah i feel like uh, again i don't know why i'm getting off these tangents here but maybe even just playing more uh 
you know, I don't know what you, what you call it, urban street soccer, you know, just on the damn concrete, you know, people probably, it's actually better than probably playing on like thick grass someplace anywhere. And then it's literally like pick up basketball, you know, you just have the ball and then, and then everyone can play, but I don't, that culture, I guess, hasn't really developed here. Yeah, it's starting to a little bit. I mean, I, you know, in LA, I play pickup soccer all the time, but that's because I just like know soccer people because of, you know, where, what I do for a living. But I think, you know, there's, I think one of the interesting things with this, like in parallel to all of the American sports is like, this isn't an issue in American sports, right? Because it's like, we're not competing with other countries develop, to develop NFL players. Um, basketball, you're kind of seeing, right, that the rest of the world is kind of catching up with basketball, I think, probably because the rest of the world kind of understands how to develop athletes, maybe a little more than we do in the US, where it's kind of just go out there and play the best kids will rise to the top. Well, I think um, soccer might even be a big factor there. It's the guys who kind of like yeah. grow out of playing soccer. They yep. they probably are pretty good, right? They're probably pretty good yep. soccer players up until a certain age once once they grow out yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But so there's been a lot of research into like can you predict who's who will be a good soccer player, right? And that, unsurprisingly, it's like impossible to predict what 13-year-old is like going to be a world-class soccer player. One of the things some research has found basically there's this thing called game intelligence, which you can kind of measure by like doing various tests to kind of see what decisions a player would make and kind of how they can scan their environment to even see what decisions are available and then what decisions they make. That's kind of like the thing that unites all of the best soccer players. And what they found, I guess, in some of the studies trying to find any correlation, like unstructured, the amount of unstructured play you did growing up with soccer has like a pretty big predictive factor in becoming like a great soccer player. So you kind of then get into the question of like, in the US, we might suddenly be creating this system where everything is very systematized and no one's getting the uh, unstructured play that is actually very important in terms of developing players. So. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. I mean, it's interesting because even now when I'm looking at some of these soccer teams for my kids, you know, they have um, like there's teams that, you know, it's it's still very rules based, even when it's not going to be a team that just has one athlete going and scoring. But those rules like you're there's a there's an upper limit, I guess, to how to how good you can be by just following mm-hmm. the rules as opposed to doing yeah. something extraordinary, especially when you're competing against a, such a big talent pool. I'm also just wondering, again, these are just ideas popping into my head. I wonder if. For basketball, it's easier to identify kids because they're just like big, you know, like the kids who are just big. You can identify them a lot earlier as being potential basketball players. There's actually like tons of kids, including myself, who like played so much basketball as a kid. It was probably kind of wasting my time because I was never going to like reach the threshold (laughs) that you would need. But there's really not like that threshold parameter when it comes to soccer as far as who can end up being a soccer athlete. Like obviously you have to be athletic, but you're not there's not hard limits that there are in some other sports. Yeah. I, I haven't forgotten everything I've written in the book, but a lot of the more specific statistics, I don't remember, but in the book, there's a, there's a study I mentioned that just kind of looks like the body composition of the population. And it's like, I don't know, 1% of the global population has like the body type, minimum body type required to play in the NBA. And with soccer, it's like 30% or something like that. So yeah, it's a, yeah, with basketball, it's like just being tall is like the main requirement to play. Not that, you know, they're not incredibly skilled athletes too, but like the main predictor is your height probably. Well, with soccer, it's like 
you know, the number of people you could walk by on the street who like roughly have the body type that could be a professional soccer player is like, you know, most of the people you walk by, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are some guys out there you see it, but not as much. Yeah, I was thinking about that because, I mean, it's changed a little bit in the NBA because it used to be more dominant for big men. I think at one point in time, it was something like, one out of every 10 people who are seven feet tall in the world was like playing in the NBA at that, at that point in time, because it was really, you didn't need much at all to do it. But yeah, that's been part of my whole argument uh, I've had with people about which sport has the best athletes as, as a nerd, I'm just going to say, if you have the entire world playing a sport and so many people could potentially play that sport, then you probably have the best athletes playing that sport because there aren't those hard sort of limits. But I admit watching LeBron James do something at that sort of size is so like overwhelmingly impressive that 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 makes a compelling argument. But I just have trouble seeing like when it's just limited to people who are that tall, that that would be the case. Yeah. Speaking of me making people mad uh, before <laughs> The World Cup final, I basically wrote a piece arguing that Messi is the greatest athlete of all time, basically. Yeah. You know, kind of sketched out why he's the greatest soccer player ever, which is pretty obvious if you if you look at any numbers. You know, he's the greatest goal scorer, the greatest creator, the greatest dribbler, and the facilitator all at the same time, while some other people <laughs> measure up in certain categories, but across all five, like, it's just ridiculous. And then I did what you said, where it's like, Wayne Gretzky, like his stats are absurd, right? You know, what is the, if he, if he never scored a goal, he would have the most points in NHL history, but it's like how many people on planet earth can play hockey, right? Yeah. It's just like not as competitive. So I, what I landed on is like, it's either Usain Bolt because his like, that was the other one I was going to mention. That's the progression of the world record, like it goes like that with him. Yeah. Everyone can Um, run basically. Yeah. And anyone can run. So I I think it's basically one of those two. And I, I think it gets into like, then you get into the argument of like, what is an athlete, right? Because yeah, LeBron James would like beat Messi at most other sports, but it's like, we're just talking about how dominant they are at their sport compared to the level of competitiveness in the sport and the average person, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like it. I mean, this is kind of, again, building these arguments around some some analytical sort of thing. So explain to me now then the transition towards, or is there even a transition of looking at the game through more of a numbers basis, or at least being able to frame arguments using that as an intelligent um, contextual point that you can bring in. I mean, it can be bad or it can be good. You know, numbers can definitely mislead if not, if not lie when you're bringing them in. Do you think you being American and we have these other sports where it's become a bigger deal that kind of helps you as a writer make that sort of part of what you're doing? Yeah, it definitely played a role because I was um I don't know I kind of started uh when I started doing a little bit of writing for Grantland when I was I was working as an editor at a magazine um I was very you know had read read Moneyball you know was reading all the you know baseball writers that were you know at at that time you know 2013 or whatever every baseball writer is like fluent in uh, analytics or sabermetrics or whatever you want to call it. It's like, it's just accepted that if you're writing about baseball, you're using at least a certain amount of data, I guess. And then it was becoming more prominent in the NFL with, I guess, like football outsiders around that time, kind of DVOA uh, was a popular, like kind of becoming popular at that point. Was, was Barnwell the there at the same time as you were there? Or no? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Barnwell okay. was there. So a ton of that. Uh, we had Cole 
Kirk Goldsberry doing um, NBA stuff. So w- being exposed to that, it's like, okay, why, why is none of this happening in soccer as I'm kind of starting to write about it? So I started to kind of try to, if I was just writing a piece about why I thought this guy was good, I would try to mention a couple stats that I could find, you know, at this time it was just like chances created or like shots attempted. But even that was like just a massive change compared to how the sport was being written about then. So I think seeing how people were, I think at the time doing, using data in their writing, but also could still like produce writing that I felt was like good writing, you know? Um, so that I, it kind of like a light bulb went off in my head, right? Where it was like, okay, I'm aware of all these American sports and kind of the work that's being done there. And I've also been watching soccer my whole life. I've played it. So I think I have a little bit of a kind of understanding of the dynamics of how it works. Can I maybe meld these two things together? Now, the first name that I put on here, um, other than yourself, to talk about potentially from from your book is the story of... Charles Reap, who I, I'd never heard of before. Um, talk about someone who kind of had a little bit of a, an arc there to, to, towards being hated, I guess, I guess eventually it's safe to say. He was the first guy getting yelled at, uh, except for not on the internet. Um, uh, talk a little bit about him, why you chose him to, to focus on here, and how much did you know about him before starting to research this stuff? Yeah, so Charles Reap, he... I think he like there's a chance he might be like the first like data analyst that was ever employed by if we want to lump soccer in with the major American sports he was like the first like this is what this guy did he crunched numbers and helped us use those numbers to play a different way um so was in the 50s 60s 70s 80s up to the 90s um and he was an accountant with the Royal Air Force saw or heard an Arsenal coach give a couple talks and he talked about the sport kind of in coach speak, but in this way of like breaking the game down into component parts and kind of describing it in like systems terms. And it, uh, to Charles Reap, he was like, Oh, I'd never heard anyone speak about sports like this. What if I kind of measure what's happening on a soccer field? And at the time, you know, there was no, um, you know, data collection companies uh, in the 50s. (laughs) No computers either. So he would go to games and the stadiums back then, most of them didn't have, or the lights they had essentially would just light the field. They wouldn't light the stands. So he would literally wear a miner's helmet with a lamp on it. And he developed this shorthand to essentially record all the things that he thought mattered um, on a soccer field and started doing it. Started doing it, Probably and then he came. Dearing himself to his fellow fans with that on during yeah. the during, yeah. <laughs> during people, that job. People definitely love that. He was definitely like a very like kind of fastidious and ornery guy. Um, yeah. Probably unsurprisingly, based on what well, I would have survived before. otherwise, probably. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so he kept doing this and kept doing this, and eventually, kind of his his the takeaway he became infamous for. He, um, you know, studied how many a goal to goals how many passes did they tend to have on average and he found that the ones that led to goals um had fewer fewer passes basically so then from there he decided okay all these teams that are just passing around with the ball in the back kind of passing around the midfield are like wasting their time you gotta just bomb it up the field chase after it and then just trying to do over and over and because possession that um because most goals come from short possession and that 
so I think why he, he caught on and ended up working for a bunch of clubs. And I think why it caught on is because that was kind of the way, a common way of playing, I guess, in England at the time, it kind of prioritized like physical, like you win games because you want it more than your opponent and kind of just kicking it long and chasing after it kind of fits directly in with that. Right. So some mm-hmm. coaches kind of are like, Oh my God, there's this data that tells us we should do this. I'm, like I'm going to hire this guy. And yeah. so he, he gains a lot of purchase in the English game, but his issue was that he, what he didn't realize in doing his calculations is that longer possessions lead, like the percentage of longer possessions that lead to goals was much higher than the percentage of shorter possessions that lead to goals. It was just that more shorter possessions led to goals because most possessions are shorter. Um, right. So it was like yeah, a, yeah, a base rate, is, base rate sort yeah. of issue, basically. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so eventually it becomes Details. so popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It catches on. He um, works with uh, Graham Taylor, who eventually becomes the England manager when England famously don't qualify for the 1994 World Cup. And so Charles, unsurprisingly, it like somehow gets Charles Reap gets blamed for all of this rather than like the other people that, you know, hired Charles Reap or listened to him. And so he kind of developed this reputation as like the guy who's bad in the locker, essentially. There's a big bit about him in Jonathan Wilson's book, Inverting the Pyramid, the kind of history of soccer tactics, and then a bunch of other pieces about him. Even 538 did a piece about him, um, uh, probably in like 2013 or something like that. Um, and so that's kind of the mindset I had with him, and I, or the view I had of him, I should say. And then I found this paper by this guy, Richard Pollard, kind of defending Charles Reed's legacy which is like something I'd never seen before. I thought it was just kind of assumed like, you know, this is what happens when you're like too hard set in your beliefs of what the numbers show you, I guess. Mm-hmm. And the paper was a fine paper. I felt like it was a little biased, but I got in touch with Richard Pollard and it turns, turns out Richard worked with Charles Reap for a while. Um, and he eventually became a character in my book and we talked a lot and he's kind of talking to me and a lot of the He's like, yeah, it wasn't only about like short passing and long passing. Like there's all this other stuff that Charles and me studied. We developed this thing called yield where we figured out the number of shots you have or the average likelihood that a shot from a certain location on the field turns into a goal. And I was like, that's (laughs) like what expected goals is. Everyone talks about that now. Um, And then he talked about how you want to pressure the defense in their own defensive third because at high turnover leads to goals um way more often than a turnover elsewhere and i was like well that's like what pressing is that's like the most popular way of playing now and so through meeting richard i learned all this other stuff he showed me he kept all of his records and it kind of shed a new light i guess on the legacy of charles reap to me and made this story way more nuanced and way more interesting um so i think i was able to write a chapter about him in a way that wasn't kind of just regurgitating all the, the stuff that had been written about, written about him in the past. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I enjoyed it. And again, as I came to the end of it, as you mentioned, then I'm kind of, uh, I don't know what to think about about this guy yeah. and his legacy because it does seem a fairly silly air that you had mentioned earlier. But at the same point in time, I have trouble in soccer of being able to identify like the thing let's say like for the nba like the thing was um 
three-pointers and layups, right? Let's figure out how we do that because we're going to get the most. Like the thing in football, American football, is like pass the ball a little bit more often, be willing to take a lower success rate in order to have a higher average gain on some of these sorts of things. And when it comes to soccer, I don't know. And also like some of these things don't feel as good in a way. Like it feels bad to miss more shots, but if you're getting more points per shot, then like it can feel really bad if you go down and you miss a whole bunch in a row, like it's deflating, but you're you're taking the higher chance. And then in soccer, like in some ways, everyone really loves possession-based football. It's what the best teams do who have the best players. But I guess for me, I I would almost think that, just intuitively that might not be the best way to play because it does like lead into what feels better for, for some people. If that makes sense, then maybe yeah. there is something to just kicking the ball down the field, at least a talent leveling sort of aspect to it. Yeah. I think that, that there's a, there's a couple things. Like I think you're, you're right. And it, part of the issue with just measuring soccer is that it's so dynamic, right? Like you could, I use this example in my book, you could just both both teams could just stare at the ball if they wanted to, right? For forty five minutes, like they could do that. While in the NFL, you can't do that because there's a play clock and there's downs and all that. NBA, there's a shot clock. Um, and I guess, I mean, I guess you could just refuse to shoot or whatever, but that's a little different. Baseball, like you, have to, the pitcher and the batter are kind of like in agreement that they're interacting with each other, right? In a baseball game, while soccer, it's like what happens on the field is so influenced by all the players around you, but also what the other team is doing. And then there's not like a, there's not just like a give and take of possessions, right? It's not like you get as many, I mean, by definition, you get as many possessions as the other team, right? Cause every time it goes back and forth, um, it's a possession technically, Yeah. but like it's teams have more possessions and more opportunities to shoot than their opponents do in a way that they don't in American sports, which makes it really, kind of even hard to measure any kind of um, optimal way of playing. I mean, I think the main, like, I think like expected goals is the thing that kind of most resembles the stuff you described because the stuff you described, it's all like, it's pretty obvious if you like remove the kind of context you get from watching the sports growing up. If you just like an outsider, it's like, Oh, it's shooting the shot that's worth three is better than the one that's like not worth three or in the NFL, like, it's better to try to keep the ball than kick it to the other team and just let them have the ball mm-hmm. um, in baseball, like a walk being as valuable as a single like that was, that's only a recent thing that's been accepted by people. Well, in soccer, I think expected goals, what it basically the kind of thing I think that it showed that's obvious, but also kind of upended the way people think about the sport is that all the best goal scorers, they score so many goals, not because they're particularly good at converting any individual opportunity into a goal, not because they're clinical finishers, which is a phrase you constantly hear on TV. I'm sure you've gotten used to it now. Um, Or you you hear, you know, a guy, uh, the announcer saying he's got to score there or he should, he should score here. Meanwhile, it's like a 20% chance. What makes somewhat similar to football sometimes where you, where you see guys and they say, Oh, he would have been gone for a touchdown. I'm like, no, he probably would have been caught like like 70% (laughs) of the time. But they always like to say that too. Like, Oh, if he would have broken that one tackle, he would have been gone. It's like, no, there are some other guys who probably would have caught him, but go ahead. Yeah, exactly. But so the reason these guys score so many goals is because they're able to get shots off frequently from high value locations. And that's like, the 
like being a good golf scorer is hey everybody this was a free version of a paid subscriber podcast at unexpectedpoints.substack.com and if you cannot afford a subscription at this point let me know either shoot me an email at unexpected pts at gmail.com send me a note or leave a comment on the substack or hit me up on twitter at kevin cole triple underscore let me know that you're experiencing some you know financial hardship at this point i will give you a no questions asked six month subscription to the pod you can get these premium podcasts and all of my other premium content thank you so much for listening and more content coming your way next week